Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. I really appreciated the way that Jordan led us to start this service. Lord, here I am. Breathing in, Lord. Breathing out, here I am. It's a perfect way to think about Father's Day. It's a perfect way to think about, for a few minutes, what we're going to talk about today. The scripture reading that I have is from Ephesians chapter 6. It's verse 4. It's very short. Uh, You may want to flip to it. It is... um, just one verse. It may even be just part of uh, a part of one verse. Um, but it's Ephesians chapter six. May be familiar to you. Uh, it's the it's all of verse four. I'm reading from the NIV. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as has been mentioned, today is Father's Day, and so I want to wish a happy Father's Day to all of you who are dads. I hope this is a relaxing and fun and joyous and restful day. As we all know, there's so much going on in the world right now, and I hope today is a day when fathers can experience God's pleasure for the important role they play in the lives of their children and in the lives of their families. This will be a good day uh, for many people. But for other people, Father's Day 2020 will be a tough day. Why? Because the virus will keep them from being able to be with their dad. Or maybe Father's Day of every year is just a reminder of the strained relationship that they have or had with their dad. Father's Day is a reminder that their dad has died or a divorce kind of split a family and that makes today a tough day. So we have all of the above as we are together here today. And last weekend, Manuel introduced our summer series, a series we are calling Churnings. And this summer we will get a chance to hear from a number of different people and each will be speaking on whatever God is churning in their life and in their heart. Might be a passage of scripture that he is impressing on them. It might be a social issue that has grabbed their attention. It might be a new frontier of self-discovery, something that they are learning about themselves as they are seeking to live with and under God. It might be a specific area of their spiritual formation where they sense God is inviting them to grow in some aspect of their life or character. And when we first planned this series and I thought about today's message, it didn't take very long for me to identify the churning in me around parenting and specifically around being a father, being Izzy's and Abby's and Sam's dad. In fact, the importance of being a good dad for all kinds of reasons churned in me since before I was a dad. Being a dad, being a father has always felt like one of, if not the most important job I have while I'm on this planet. And that doesn't mean I've always been a good father. But my role with my kids, my influence on my children, the significance of that has churned in me for a very long time. And I don't think I'm uncommon. 
I don't think this is unique. Those of us who have children, generally speaking, want to be good parents. I mean, the stakes are high. And so we want to do a good job. And so today I want to share a few things about being a father. But there's something else churning in me these days. And in kind of a roundabout way, it too is connected to fatherhood. Our nation, as many of you know, is at a bit of a crossroads. The murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and others has reignited racism and racial tension in our nation. And questions like, what do we as Christ followers do? How do we respond individually and as a church community? Maybe a really significant question that is in the air, what is God doing in the midst of all this? What is the Spirit up to in all of these things, and what does he want us to do? These questions have filled and even dominated many of our thoughts and discussions over the past several weeks around here, in many other homes, and in many other groups. And so while Father's Day is a day to honor fathers and celebrate the significance of dads and have a great time, a relaxing time, and just to keep this real, my mind is already done with this service, and I'm home, and I'm in the backyard, and the grill's going, so I'm right there with you. Today is for that, and I at least intend to fully enter into that. But Father's Day 2020 is happening in the midst of a very unique time in our nation. We're still dealing with a pandemic, and I know, like you know, that almost everyone is worn out from the strain of this pandemic. But we're also dealing with the sin of racism and rising racial tension. And you know something? Just recently I have sensed in a greater way, and maybe my sense is inaccurate, but I've sensed in a greater way the fragility of Oak Hills Church as we think and pray and seek God's will together on how to respond to all these things. And so today, fatherhood is churning in my mind. And the sin of injustice and racism is churning in my mind. And God is undoubtedly at work in the midst of what is happening. But it is also very confusing and very challenging. And so I want to speak to fathers a bit today. And I hope that some of my remarks at least will intersect with the role and the responsibility of a father, but more broadly, I am kind of speaking to us all today. Paul says in our scripture reading, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And keep in mind the patriarchal context of the first century world. Men had the power. Men were in charge. And fathers had incredible power and unilateral authority over their wives and over their children. It's the way society ran in those days. And just like the situation now in private homes and in society as a whole, when power and authority is misused, anger and exasperation, the word Paul uses, and tension and division inevitably follow. And so Paul here is confronting the typical first century family dynamic in calling fathers, and he uses these two words that sort of converge together and taken together. They mean nurture their children 
in the way of Jesus. I want to say that again. Paul is confronting the first century patriarchal family system by saying fathers are to nurture their children in the way of Jesus. And I love the counter-instinctive word, idea, and image. A father nurturing his children in the way of Jesus. Guiding them in his truth. Teaching them his word. Helping them gain his wisdom. Nurturing his children to believe that Jesus Christ is in fact the king of the world. Helping his children cultivate Jesus' eyes and ears and hands and feet and heart for other people. One of the things I've noticed over the years is how fathers sometimes see their role with their children as a temporary job. And when their kids become teenagers or when they get into their 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s or whatever it happens to be, some fathers think, well, my job is over. Many years ago, I heard a guy uh, describing how his, at the time, 16-year-old son was now into girls and chasing girls. And this guy said something like, well, I guess I did my job because his son was now into girls, curious at best. An extreme example, perhaps, but I want to absolutely push against this with all my might. This idea that a father's job ends or that it's a temporary role. The role of a father certainly changes as children grow up and get older, but the role of a father in the life of their children is a lifelong responsibility. And so I want to offer up three kind of particulars or specifics behind this idea of a father nurturing their children, as Paul says so in Ephesians 6. But as I even think about this idea of I or we as fathers nurturing our children, I also want this to be this idea that I need to be nurtured in these very same three things. And even as I expand away from that, given the world we're now living in and the circumstances we're now facing, I think it is accurate to say to to a degree we all need to be uh, developed and nurtured in these three areas. So the first area is with regard to identity, an important word. One crucial role a father has in his children's lives is to nurture their identity, to help them know they are a beloved son or a beloved daughter. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is about to go public with his message and with his ministry. And he goes to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when Jesus emerges from the water, God spoke to Jesus and he said these words, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And Jesus heard these words from God his Father. And after this, he ventured out into the wilderness, we're told, to be tempted by the devil, and then his public life began. God the Father declaring his love for his Son and blessing his Son. You are my Son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You probably know this, but every single child on the planet, regardless of their age, wants to hear that from their father. And they want to hear it, not once, they want to hear it and see it throughout their lives from their father. 
And when a father pours into his children this way, it shapes and forms their identity as the beloved of their dad. See, we want to be able to say that and believe that. Abby and Izzy and Sam want to be able to say and believe, I am the beloved of my dad. So dads have this incredible power to establish the identity or help establish the identity of their children as the beloved. And when children know they are loved, they can venture out into the wilderness of the world to face the challenges and pressures and heartaches and joys of this life with dad's words echoing in their soul and strengthening them through many challenging times. And again, this does not stop when children grow up and become adults. I've listened to those in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s whose identity was shaped and solidified by the love and blessing of their father. And this knowledge, this experiential knowledge, this knowledge that they are loved by their father has steadied their heart through life's various twists and turns. People who have this gift from their dad live with a level of confidence because they know they have their father's blessing because he's shown it to them and he's told it to them. But I've also listened to those in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s whose identity was misshaped by the absence of their father's love and blessing. Power gone bad, perhaps. Or the father abandons the family. Or... And this is common. A father delegates the nurturing stuff to the mother because, as the uh, saying goes, or as the common wisdom goes, um, she's better at it. Well, when a father doesn't show and doesn't say, you are my son or you are my daughter, whom I love, with you I am well pleased, or if not well pleased, how about mostly pleased, the emptiness And the vacancy echoes throughout the child's life and creates all kinds of uncertainty or can, creates all kinds of insecurity or can, and life is just harder. So when we think of the somewhat vague and general biblical instruction to nurture children in the way of Jesus, nurturing their identity as the beloved, as our beloved, as their father, is a father's work. Expressing love pouring out blessing. Obviously, at times, in order for it to actually be love, there's correction, there's challenge, there's speaking truth when appropriate, but always in love and out of love. So as we keep thinking about what fathers nurture in their children and what fathers need nurtured and perhaps what we all need nurture, let's talk about teachability. Paul tells fathers to bring up children in the training and instruction of the Lord, nurturing them in the way of Jesus. And it is, this is a crucially important idea that permeates the New Testament and the Old Testament, and we can say it this way. This crucially important idea is that God is king over everything. The starting point of life, faith, Shalom, goodness, can be put real simply. Jesus is king. And for the Christ follower, the starting point of identity is this, real simply. Jesus is king. 
So as dads, loving our children and making sure they know we love and bless them is essential. But most of all, we point them to the ultimate truth and to the ultimate source of their identity captured in the simple phrase, Jesus is King. I've been thinking a lot about this simple phrase in the midst of the racism and the racial tension. Jesus is King, period. Agreeing with it or not, believing it or not, doesn't change the reality of it. But as a Christ follower, we have decided to run the Jesus is King flag up the flagpole of our lives. By the way, Jesus' flag colors are green and gold. That's a little bit secondary, so we won't go into that. But this is now the flag that flies over our lives. The flag that says Jesus is King. Which means we are declaring that Jesus Christ is the starting point of our ethics, our morality, our social perspective, our social involvement. Jesus is the starting point of our politics. And Jesus is King is the starting point in how we think about and deal with racism. When we proclaim Jesus is King... Over our lives, we're saying that we belong to Him. He's our first priority. Our loyalty is first to Him. We follow Him. We surrender to Him. We listen and we learn from Him. His way is our way. His heart is our heart. His eyes, we want to be our eyes. And everything in our lives, money, politics, attitudes perspectives on racism, our own racism, sexuality, marriage, children, career, social media, guns, violence, who we vote for, you name it, all of it happens under the flag that says Jesus Christ is King. Now, we realize Jesus is indeed King. But the process of actually letting him be my king and living as if he is my king in all of those areas I just mentioned take time, takes time, and especially involves the Spirit of God transforming those parts of me over which his flag does not yet fly if I am open to that. This is like being a Christian 101. And we know children have to be teachable if they're going to be nurtured in the way of Jesus, as Paul puts it. Mothers and fathers know this. Similarly, we, I, you, have to be teachable if we're going to live true to our claim that Jesus is our king. Because Jesus wants to fly his flag over the entirety of our lives. And over those areas where it doesn't yet fly. Last Monday I was invited to a men's small group. And also invited was an African American man named Charles. Who was a principal of a school and who was also an assistant pastor at a church. And the purpose of this gathering was to listen to Charles share his stories and his experiences. And his insights about racism and about what is happening in our nation from his perspective. And one of the things he said just stopped me in my tracks. He said, 
Yeah, I don't go jogging in my neighborhood. He didn't say it with anger. He didn't say it dramatically. He didn't say it to try to make all of us who were white or Asian feel guilty. He just stated what is a fact. I don't go jogging in my neighborhood. And sitting there with these other men listening to this, you just knew if you had any sense about you, it was time to be slow to speak, slower to get defensive, and quick to listen, as James instructs us. Teachable. This past Thursday, Sharon Richards came and spoke to our church staff about her experiences and her perspectives on racism and on what is happening in our nation and what we can do in response. And she talked about conversations she has had to have with her children, Jordan and Ashley, because they are black. I haven't had to have any of those discussions with Sam or Abby or Izzy. And you just knew, if you had any sense about you, it was time to be slow to speak, slower to get defensive, and quick to listen. Teachable. But I have to say, I've noticed something about those of us who are Christ followers. We're not always so keen on Jesus teaching us new things so he can occupy new areas of our heart and life and fly his flag over those areas. We are keen about thinking we want this to happen or even saying we want this to happen, but we're not always so keen on it actually happening. I mean, like children, in other words, sometimes we're not so teachable. We are, rather, a bit dug in on our perspectives. We are, rather, quick to get defensive on certain things. We are, rather, absolutely certain we are right and absolutely convinced Jesus' king flag, in fact, does fly over this area, regardless of what anyone else might suggest. Take racism, for example. I believe now is a time for white people like me and some of you to sit at the feet of black people we know and listen, prayerfully listen. Jesus, what are you saying to me here through this person, through this friend? What are you teaching me through Charles? What are you teaching me through Sharon? Questions like this. Jesus, where is the sin of racism in me, even if I don't realize it? Where is it in my thoughts? Where does it creep into my attitudes? Where does it shape and jade my perspective? Where does it come out with my words? Where does it come out with my silence? Or how about this? Jesus, why am I defensive when the subject of racism is brought up? Why am I quick to be defensive? Here's another one. Why am I quick to be defensive when I hear the phrase white privilege? What is it about this, Jesus, that threatens me? What am I afraid of in this conversation? It's a fascinating little verse in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 4. It is a verse that is in the context of God renewing the covenant with his people. And Deuteronomy 29.4 says this. 
But to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. I read this recently and I thought, I think that's true of me in a lot of areas where the Jesus is King flag does not fly over my life. He's not given you a mind, Mike, that understands or eyes, Mike, that see or ears, Mike, that hear. See, at Oak Hills Church, just to be crystal clear on this, we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms anyone who will allow it to happen. And we believe the church, this local expression of the church, is supposed to be a picture, an example, a prototype of what the world could actually be like if Jesus were allowed to be king over it. Our calling as O'Killians is to come together and to allow Jesus to be king over us so that we are a picture, an example, of pro- a prototype of what the world could be if Jesus were allowed to be king over it. So we, as Oak Hills Church, are seeking to learn how to come together and come to the Lord's table as different people, with different colors, and different backgrounds, and different salaries, and different educations, and different ethnicities, and different political ideologies, and different ages, and so on we could go, and allow the power of the Spirit of God to nurture unity and oneness in us as we surrender ourselves to Jesus, our King. And this picture, this image of different people, Together, at the table, under Jesus, is a picture of God's shalom. His goodness and flourishing where, in the language of Galatians, there is no Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. I'll add black or white or brown, for we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we listen in times like these. We seek to learn in times like these. So the flag of Jesus is King flies over Oak Hills Church as a community more. But for this to happen, we who are Christ followers, individually, each of us, you, me, must be teachable. Racism is a sin. Racism is evil. Racism in all of its insidious expressions is not the way of Jesus. Our nation has a history of racism. And some things have certainly happened over our history to confront racism and begin to eradicate racism. But clearly, there's a lot more work to be done. And yet there are people, you know them, and so do I. Maybe we are one of them. There are people who claim to be Christian and claim to follow Jesus and claim to have the Jesus' king flag flying over their lives who have not yet invited Jesus into their own racism. Are we teachable? Are we teachable on racism? And let me remind you, This is not a hike we go on by ourselves. This is not a hike. This issue of 
thinking through, struggling with, and responding to racism is not a hike by ourselves with those, or, or a hike that we go on only with those who are heading in the same direction at the same pace where we are. Why is it not a, a hike like that? Because we believe the church is supposed to be an example of God's Shalom. So it's a lot messier than just me and those who think like me going on this hike by ourselves. Where there is equality and mutuality and love in our community, not racism. Where a church of differences, like one we're trying to have, is learning to come together in mutuality, in love, and against racism. So we have to walk into this together. I need you to help root out the racism in me. Small groups need each other to root out the racism in one another. Snide comments here and there about the idea that black lives matter. Defensiveness about the idea. Defensiveness about racism. Defensiveness about white privilege should be followed up on by small group leaders and friends who sees the moment to open up a space for redemptive conversation about spiritual formation in the arena of race. Or, if you prefer, a conversation about the Jesus is King flag flying over the heart and the eyes and the ears and the mouth to transform the racism within us. Martin Luther King Jr. said these incredible words. I'm absolutely convinced that men hate each other because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they're separated from each other. No greater tragedy can befall society than the attempt to live in monologue rather than dialogue. And I would suggest to you that even when we are with others who see it all the same way we do, we are engaged in a communal monologue not a communal dialogue. So I keep wanting to emphasize something we've talked about many times, and it's to move toward those who are different within the community of Oak Hills because the gospel and shalom require this. The purification of Oak Hills as a church so we shimmer with more of the shalom of God requires, I would say, demands... We walk toward those who are different and we have redemptive conversations. Lastly, we nurture in our children. We need nurtured in us, and that is empathy. Sympathy means with feeling. Empathy means in feeling. They're not quite the same thing. Sympathy is compassion or feeling for those over there who suffer. Empathy is compassion or feeling in solidarity with those who suffer. So empathy tries to stand in another's shoes, tries to see with their eyes, tries to hear with their ears, tries to feel what they feel. Empathy then is a way of being with another person in their struggle or in their suffering. Not that we will ever have the exact experience with the one we empathize with. That's not possible. But empathy is incarnational happens up close, face-to-face, with others. Jesus has stood in our shoes and felt the weight of this world as a vulnerable, marginalized, oppressed 
human being. He knows what it is like to live with his back against the wall and with a view from below. Throughout the Gospels, we find this statement. Jesus was, and here's the phrase, moved with compassion. And the phrase literally means in his guts. He had a twist in his guts when he saw things like vulnerable people or injustice or suffering or pain. His guts twisted when he saw those things and he moved toward those things. Henry Nouwen described it this way. Jesus became lost with the lost, hungry with the hungry, and sick with the sick. He felt compassion in his guts for aimless crowds. He wept the death of his friend Lazarus. He felt the sadness of Lazarus' sisters. He saw a broken woman in the synagogue and called her forward in the middle of a service to heal her broken body. So what do we imagine Jesus Christ would do if he were standing in the middle of Folsom, California right now, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a nation wearied by racism, where black people are hurting? What do we imagine Jesus Christ would do if he was standing out in the middle of East Bidwell, knowing what is going on? To nurture a child in the way of Jesus and to grow in Christ-likeness ourselves, to be transformed, especially in these days we're living in, is to become increasingly empathetic with those who suffer and who live with their backs against the wall and with the view from below. A couple of weeks ago I listened to a webinar by two African-American pastors who serve in Detroit, and they were sharing their experiences with racism and offering guidance on how to respond. There are about 150 or 70 or so uh, pastors from around the country within our denomination listening in and watching this webinar. And one of the pastors talked about how his son is now 24 years old and he has been pulled over by the police about 22 times for no reason. And he said this like you might say, you know, I've had animal fries from In-N-Out 22 times. Just matter-of-factly. No drama. The reason he was pulled over is because he was in an area where black people supposedly aren't common. Didn't get any ticket. Was never arrested. But was pulled over. Find out, what are you doing here? Now, I've driven through many areas of many towns where the population is predominantly black. And I have never been pulled over and asked, what are you doing in this neighborhood? And it just hit me when the pastor said this. They weren't heaping guilt on us. They weren't trying to make us drown in shame. They weren't saying, see what you did. They weren't doing any of that. They're just stating facts. Just talking about reality that they experience. And it hit me when he said this. I have a 27, 26, and 22-year-old, two daughters and a son. I've never once instructed them on what they should do if they get pulled over. Never. And none of them have ever come home and told me they were pulled over for no reason. I mean, they thought 22 miles over the speed limit was no reason until I nurtured them in the law. (laughs) Empathy. In feeling. So Sharon and Charles and these two black pastors from Detroit, when they were asked, well, what can we do? They all said essentially the same thing. 
they said much, many things, but one of the things they all said was one thing you can do is be with us in this. Come alongside and be with us in this. Empathy. And I'm going to finish this with a metaphor that Charles shared with us this past Monday, and it just has stuck with me. I've thought about it, shared it many times. To try to get a sense of where he's at and how someone like me, uh, what I can do in response, one thing I can do. He shared this little metaphor. He talked about watching a webinar that had a black pastor and a white pastor. They were sharing the conversation about racism. And one of them mentioned, some, said, said this. Here's one way to think about it. Imagine that when your wife is pregnant and she is carrying a child and you as her husband or as the father of the child, you have no idea what she is feeling. And you can't have any idea what she is feeling. And then when she's in the delivery room and there's all sorts of pain that she's experiencing, you can't know that pain. And you won't ever know that pain. But what you can do is you can be with her. You can be alongside her. You can be present with her. And at least for me, right now, that metaphor compels me to be with those, to be empathetic, in feeling, with those right now in our country who are suffering. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we remind ourselves today that when we decided to follow you, we were deciding to fly the flag, your flag, over our lives. Over every inch of our lives. Over every issue we deal with. And certainly we need your Holy Spirit to continue to transform us so your flag does fly over these aspects of our lives. And we pray today for our friends, our brothers and sisters in our own country, African Americans, black people, who are hurting right now. And we pray for your wisdom, for your companionship, for your grace to be poured out in the midst of all this. And we pray for ourselves that your spirit will guide us, that we might discern how we can help, how we can be with those who suffer. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.